Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, um, just for the gospel of Matthew that we've been um, making our way through for a while now, Lord. I, um, I pray, Father, uh, that as we navigate this discourse of Jesus, um, that you would help us to understand the context, Lord, as we uh, enter into these five verses, which are not very hard to understand. Um, they're, they're so much harder to apply. Um, Father, I pray that you would, um, Lord, help us to understand the meaning, Lord, that we would rightly understand what Christ was saying and, and, and speaking uh, to the disciples. Father, I pray that you would help us to, um, to, to learn how to apply these, uh, uh, these verses, the truths that are found in here, the principles in these verses, Lord, that you would help us to learn how to apply them uh, in love and graciousness and kindness and in truth. Um, Father, we are thankful um, for the relationship that we have with you in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, You have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that by your spirit we would correctly understand um, these verses, that you would help us, Lord, um, in our application and seeing how they apply to us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather, to worship collectively as a church. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, these, these five verses are sort of the difficult verses, they're, they're very easy to, to sort of um, take out of context. In, in fact, on Monday, um, uh, you know, typically Mondays I try to go out on ride-alongs. And so I hop in the car and there's just really no, there, there, there's no telling where the conversation is going to go in the front seat of a police car. Like there's just, they're, they're, they're kind of like broken conversations in between calls and and so we get into the car, and we start driving, and the, the officer looks at me, and he says, hey, how are Christians supposed to handle the confronting of sin to non-Christians? And I said, well, that's kind of random. Why, like, what are, you, what are you saying? And, and he said, well, there's a cop who's a believer, and there's another cop who I don't think is a believer, and they're having a little squabble. And, and that officer told me that he's going to go Matthew 18 it. And I'm like, what did you just say? <laughs> like, this is, 
I'm in this passage for this Sunday. And so it led into this sort of dialogue about, like, well, there's a greater context of, of these five verses, these, these five verses and just reading them in all transparency. When I read these verses, these are verses that can make my stomach just kind of go into knots. Um, there's, there's really nothing pleasant about the situation that's being addressed um, in, in, context, in, the, in, these, in these few verses. Um, it's very easy to take these verses out of context and to get our minds and hearts sort of heading the wrong way down the road. Um, I, I referenced during the last service sort of, and over the years, I often make the difference between cop theology and fireman theology. Uh, to explain, I've noticed that when there's an accident or something sort of goes awry on the streets and both firemen and police officers respond, they respond in very different ways. Both of them want to help. Both of them are there to, to, to help the individual. Um, but I've noticed that cops, when they're helping, especially like, like life-threatening sort of situation, they do the best that they can until the firemen or paramedics get there. Then the paramedics get there and take over. And then the cops sort of sit back and they go, who's at fault here? With their ticket book out, they begin to sort of write up the violations. They're really, I mean, they're, they're human and they care about people being okay. But their role is, is to sort of enforce the rules. And if somebody's at fault, they're going to give the citation where the, where the firemen sort of rolls on scene and they could care less about who's getting the ticket, who, what they, they're just there to sort of restore and to help and to try to save the life of whoever it happens to be that's injured. Um, they're simply there offering aid. And so in the Christian life, what I've sort of seen is that there are Christians who sort of follow cop theology, who, who it's very easy to sort of get in the position where we think that we're God and that our role is to start writing tickets uh, for people's sins. And so if we come to this passage with cop theology, I believe that we're already heading down the road in the wrong direction, as I said already. But I believe that we're to have fireman theology, this whole context. The, the idea is that we, have, as followers of Christ, our heart, our aim is to, to help those who've gone astray. Um, this clearly is addressing something um, that's not pleasant. Like I noticed during the whole last service, just thinking about the things that are mentioned here, my right eye started twitching. Like it's been twitching the whole time because it's it, the, confronting somebody that you love about something that they're doing wrong. There's just the it's It's like, you know, it's like trying to put fuel in your car and light up a cigarette at the same time. It, like it can be done. I think I've never tried it, but, but there's a lot of, it could go really bad, really fast. And so this, these five verses, we need to sort of step back to remember the context at the very end of chapter 17, where we were two weeks ago, or really where we were last week, uh, Jesus and his disciples had returned to Capernaum. They sort of returned to their home base as they get there. They're met by a tax collector. This tax collector, it was a very different tax. This wasn't Roman tax. 
Um, this was a tax that was levied on Jewish males who are 20 years and older. It was an annual tax. It was two days wages, and its purpose was to sort of keep the temple up and running. It was referred to as the two drachma tax. And so this tax collector goes to Peter and he says, hey, uh, uh, your rabbi Jesus, he, he pays this tax, doesn't he? Peter says, yeah, of course he does. And, and so we get this exchange between Jesus and Peter, sort of Jesus shows Peter that ultimately he's exempt from the tax as all rabbis would have been exempt from the tax. Um, but, but Jesus didn't go through the, the traditional um, model of becoming a rabbi. Uh, he, was a mo- he was a rabbi because he was God, because the book which we study, he was behind the writing of it. And so he ultimately had this exemption, but according to Jerusalem, he wouldn't have had an exemption because he didn't go through their sort of their process. And so when everything was sort of said and done, Jesus shows them that they, as his children, had ultimately were exempt from the king's taxes. But he said, I don't want to offend this tax collector, so go ahead and cast your, go, go fishing. The first fish you catch, pull out the money. There'll be enough money to pay our taxes. Go ahead and do that. And so this led to the discussion in chapter 18, the very beginning of this chapter, where the disciples' minds, they begin asking questions amongst themselves. Well, since we follow the king and since there's ex- this exemption, since we're walking so close with Jesus, clearly there's a pecking order uh, in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm kind of wondering, who's, who's going to be the top dog? Like Peter's like, well, me, Peter, James, and I, we've had a bunch of special excursions with Jesus, so maybe we're the top three, and you guys are like in the lower half, and they're sort of having this discussion. And so they asked Jesus, say, hey, Jesus, we've been sort of talking, um, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Like, we understand that the king is the greatest, but, but next to the king, who, like amongst us, uh, who, who's, who's the highest? And so Jesus begins to explain to them that their teaching was, their, their understanding was backwards. That ultimately, if you want to become great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a child. Um, there's this posture of humility. And he begins to, uh, in the first um, 14 verses of chapter 18, he shows them sort of how, how the, the way up in the kingdom of God is totally opposite um, from human standards. And he, he begins to show them that if you're in the kingdom of God, your heart, if you want it to be like the king's, the king uh, cares about those who are on the outside. And that the great means should be taken to help those that are outside of Christ come to be a part of the body that they would receive their king or to receive Jesus as their king. By the time we come to verse 14, Jesus says, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And immediately he transitions into this teaching. Uh, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so I refer to this, verse 15, as sort of phase one of the operation. Ideally, in a situation where you have to sort of uh, confront somebody's sin, um, hopefully it doesn't go past verse 15. Um, A few things as I look at this verse that I want to point out. When I start reading... Uh, if your brother sins, two things sort of jump out at me. Questions. Um, it says if, so, so the idea, if this happens, there's sort, of, there's, there's sort of a trigger. If you see something, 
then there's sort of a response on your part. And sort of the trigger that I see is we see this term brother, it could be sister. The idea is that this is somebody within the household of faith. Uh, That this is uh, the idea that this is a brother or sister in Christ, somebody within the household of God. You know them, you love them, you care for them. You see um, that they have sin. Um, Sin has been described as um, missing the mark. It's also been described as um, to act contrary to the will and law of God, to engage in wrongdoing. Uh, I I would point out at this point that there are many things that as we um, walk with God, as we grow closer to God, as we study his word, there are things that God can convict us of that that are sort of gray areas within Scripture, that, they're, that you could be deeply convicted about something, and for you, that if you do that, it would be sort of a stumbling block for you that you don't participate in. But the Scripture doesn't say that whatever that is, that it's necessarily a sin. And it's very easy for Christians to take preferences and their um, things that they personally care deeply about and then to project them as God's law and then to thrust them upon others. And so I want to say here that when it says that your brother sins, um, the, the trigger is that there is something that is an absolute clear violation of Scripture that, that as you go to them, you can point clearly um, to the Scripture that says, you know what, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter so-and-so, it says this. And, and the person is clearly violating it. There's, there's no room for, um, like, it's clearly what they're doing is wrong. Um, so if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. The whole go and show right there, it's like my stomach sinks. Uh, like, like, like following Christ often forces us to do the, the noble, the honorable thing, to, to see somebody who's an heir, to, to go to them in love, that's not the easy thing to do. But God calls us to act in sort of a courageous way. Um, I, I think that there's a few things that, that I need to sort of address um, that I sort of see within this verse, principles that we can apply. So if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Um, the first on this is private. You as an individual see so-and-so um, in sin. The first thing that you want to do is to go speak to them privately. Uh, this is I, I get the feeling that this is sort of a, a face-to-face conversation. Um, the reason, our motive for, for doing this is we want to honor God. We want to follow God's example. We know that... Uh, in Romans 2.4, when Paul is writing to the believers in the church, he says, don't, don't start to think lightly about the kindness of God which lead, led you to repentance. Um, uh, there's, there's great um, humility that should be a part of when you go and speak to somebody about sin. We recognize that we all have sin. We all have the propensity in our flesh to go down a sinful road. And so when we are coming before a person and we're confronting them for it, we recognize our own frailty, our own ability to truly um, discern the whole picture oftentimes. 
And so we go sort of, it puts us in a posture of love. We recognize that, that our repentance, we were led to repentance through the kindness of God. Um, if God is asking us to, to go and to speak into the life of another person, we go there with humility, knowing that we ourselves each struggle with sin. Um, we, there's nothing, uh, you know, super uh, great about ourselves. We all are sinners who have fallen short by the glory of God. Um, our, our aim in going to the person is reconciliation, uh, restoration. There's a verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And it says in there, it sort of comes after, as Paul's writing, he addresses the deeds of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. And then after he addresses the fruit of the Spirit, he writes this, um, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, and I want to point out that in Galatians, here in Matthew, uh, Jesus casts this really wide net on sin. Um, it's so general. There's no details, which sort of really forces us to, um, like, this is something that we need to, like, wrestle with. Like, if we're going to do, like, Lord, is this something that I need to speak to the person? Um, it really can be applied in a, in a bunch of different areas. Um, but if you, if anyone is caught in any trespass in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so like the picture is, um, the last part there is like you recognize your own frailty. You, you go there with great humility, gr um, great gentleness. Um, the idea is that the person who's going to the individual, that there's a level of, of spiritual maturity in them, that, that their aim is restoration. The, the word in Galatians, it's a, it's a word... Um, that's almost like what I would think of like an orthopedic surgeon. You break your bone, and it's the act of placing the bone or setting the bone back into place. And so there's a, the picture that a, that a brother or sister who is in sin, um, that there's a, something has been broken, something with God has been sort of um, set out of place. And your act in going there is helping them. The aim is restoration this should never, this is never at all a model for going to give somebody a chewing out, giving them a talk, you know, for us and the teams, it would always be like, I'm going to take him out behind the mill van and we're just going to go fisticuffs and we're going to resolve the problem that way. And I'm going to get my steam out. This is really that you in love see your brother or sister being hurt by their sin and you understand that they're going a bad course and you want to help them come back to experience the koinonia, the fellowship uh, with the Father. And, and so this is a, this is a huge, huge uh, undertaking. And I think that when we go there, when we, uh, and I'm speaking in very general terms, sort of the idea is, is that as you go there, as you go and confront or go and show uh, him his fault in private, if he listens to you, there's sort of this picture of dialogue that happens. And I do believe that sometimes as, as we're faced with these situations where you go to so-and-so and you confront them for such-and-such, and you say, you know, I'm, I'm coming here in love. This is like really hard for me to do. And I see this in your life. And as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, I'm like really concerned about your well-being because the scripture says this. 
and I see you doing this, and I just, I, I just want to, like, what's going on? And I think sometimes we can totally, this could be a total misunderstanding. Um, Proverbs 18, 17 says this, um, the first to plead his case seems right. So the one telling his case, oh, it's right. And I've seen this so much in uh, riding along with police officers. Like, I, I'll, I'm just there kind of like tagging along, and they go to so-and-so person, and that person's angry, and they're pleading his case, and this guy's such a jerk. And I'm like, that guy's a total jerk. Yeah. Hey, let's slap handcuffs on this guy. Let's take care of business. And the officer's like, okay, oh, thank you very much. I'm going to just stay right here, stay sitting down. I'm going to go talk to this person. And the other person says, this guy totally did this to me. It's like, oh, that guy is a jerk. Like, oh, that's not the facts. And there's this idea that if you go, I didn't read, the, I don't think I read the rest of this verse here, Proverbs 18, 17. It says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. That sometimes as you go there and say, oh, that does look bad, but that's not at all what's been going on. This is what's been happening. It's like, oh, Great. I'm glad that everything's like okay with you because it looked really, the appearance of it looked like you were going this direction with your life and I was really concerned. So in one sense, it could be a misunderstanding. Um, one of my huge pet peeves that I think it was last summer, I, um, I had something happen to where I, the one thing that will really get me upset is if I see a person park at a handicapped spot, even if they have the placard, and they basically get out of their car and they like do jumping jacks into the store or cartwheels. And it's like, hey, you're not hurt at all. Like, that's wrong. Like, in my heart, I want to go to their car and just sit there and like write a note to them or challenge them. I never do. It's just all within my mind and my heart. Like, I'm just like, maybe I'll look at them like, come on. Well, I, it was like last year, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, like, I remember I even posted something that Susan seen right here. She was one of the people to sort of help expose, and then I saw it another time. It's like you see a totally healthy person park in the spot with a little placard, and you get all upset, and you get riled up, and then they go into the store, and then they come out, and it's like they have their parent with them that's in a walker. And it's like, oh, I'm such a jerk. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's a misunderstanding. The perception is one way, but then when you go and you talk and you're not there to pick a fight, you're there to help the person, you, you, it, it's very, the, the problem is resolved. Um, another thing is, is that, that this, the idea is that this is a person who's young in their walk and it's very well could be that, that they're doing something wrong and sinful and they just simply don't know. Like they don't have a foundation of the scripture. They've, they've not been walking with the Lord. And you say, hey, I see you doing this. It's like, oh, that's a sin. That's wrong. Yeah, you can't be doing that. Like you can't like. Like, and I think that there are times when a person just simply doesn't know and they need somebody to come along. So this is discipleship, like going along and helping them to see what the scripture says so that God could lead them along in their lives. I think they see this a lot in like marriage counseling, like with young couples that are struggling through and it's like, hey, you know, you've, you're, you need help with this. The other cases, because the person is like, I didn't even realize that I hurt another person. Oh, I need to go make men's and, it's, and it could just be, everything could be restored. And see, in verse 15, it's the ideal is set. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have one, your brother. 
that this is the aim. It's never to win the argument. It's never to show how right you are and how wrong they are. The, the, the issue at hand is restoration, that you want to restore the person who's gone astray. This isn't a, a checklist for how to excommunicate somebody from the church. The, the picture is, is that the person, on one sense, has already left, and you're trying to win them back. In fact, this term for one, it's a, it's, it's a word that would, be used, would have been used in the marketplace of the time. It's a, um, to, 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 for a, a businessman to, to make a profit or to make a gain of, of losses, to recuperate something. Um, and so the picture is that there's this restoration. And it fits in context. See, in verse 14, which we covered last week, ties it all together. Jesus, the last thing he says, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother in sins, sort of the picture of the lost sheep that strayed, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won him back. He has not perished. He's been restored into the fellowship of his father. This isn't some way to sort of condemn somebody. Um, something that's not mentioned between verse 15 and 16 and between verses 16 and 17 is the matter of time. I, uh, I need to figure out how, I'm going to pick on Jeff since he's right here. So, so Jeff's the bad guy. Um, sometimes we can look at this sort of instruction. I see that Jeff's totally in sin on a point, right? So I build up the courage and I say, Jeff, we need to talk. Hey, can we, can we have coffee together? Um, and, hey, and in fact, there's a coffee pot right there. Why don't we just go in the back room and have a conversation right now about the issue that I have with you right now? So he's like, this is, this is just made up. He just happens to be the guy right in front of me. And so then we go back there and I say, hey, I see that you're in sin over this. He doesn't really respond well. And so then I just go straight into verse 16 and I say, hey, okay, it's been, it's been 45 seconds since I talked to him. He hasn't responded yet. I come back and I say, hey, Dave Johnson, uh, hey, two Daves right there, perfect. So, hey, two Daves, he's in sin. I've already talked to him. We need to move it. We need to escalate things. These are the facts. Let's go back there and talk to him. Okay, now I have three people. We confront him again. He doesn't respond. It's been a whole two minutes now. So now I'm going to come out and get all of the leadership from the church. I'm going to explain the situation that Jeff has. Now we're at minute four. By minute five, we're basically kicking him out of the church. <laughs> That's sort of a highlighting of things. What's not mentioned in this, this could, this could be something when you talk to the person, it could be something that it takes a day, a week, a month, a quarter. I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't list the amount of time, but the idea is like, there's a measure of time when, when, whenever I've been confronted my, my, my reaction is to push back, to justify my behavior. Um, to take this out of the, the realm of, you know, where everybody starts feeling uncomfortable, like I'm talking about them specifically. Um, like at the gym this week, this has been like, I'm not the young guy that I was. And at the gym, there's like coaches and they're, you know, whenever they come to me and say, hey, you need to do this. And I look at my mic, don't you know who you're talking to? I'm a Navy SEAL. I know how to do squats. Like, just leave me alone. Like, back away. Or they'll come and talk to me in the middle of it, and I'll just ignore them. Like, I'm not listening to you. Like, I, I'm just going to act like I don't hear you. You're not talking to me. Or it's like, oh, I just got to give a nod and keep doing it. And it's like, 
Then you go home and you're like, oh, they're right. Like, who am I? I'm like, I'm an out of shape pastor now. Like, I need to like probably listen to what they're saying. And, and after a couple of days go, oh yeah, I need, I'm sorry. I need to like respond to what you said. Um, there's, there's a time for like marination of thought to, to, to allow what you say to kind of sink in, to let them think about it. Um, we don't just move from step to step to step quickly. And, and it doesn't say how long, but there, there is, what's not said is that there's an understanding that some time goes by. Um, I think that there's a couple lessons here. To, to, the, to the person confronting the individual, I think we've said a couple things for application already, that when we, when we are confronting a person, our aim is reconciliation. Our posture is in total... Um, humility our attitude is love that we want what's best for the person we're not going to win an argument we're understanding that we might even be we might be off we might be have a misunderstanding we really want what's best for them we're not there to start a fight we're going there in love Um, now if you're the person receiving correction there's great wisdom there's great maturity that when a friend comes and confronts you. Now, I've, said, I've already said this takes wisdom. This doesn't happen a lot. But you see that so-and-so comes to you. You know you have a deep relationship with that person. The person loves you. They care for you. They've been your friend for many years. They come to you just to correct you on an issue. There's great wisdom to kind of say, you know what? This has probably been very difficult for them to come to me to express this. So I should probably, like, take to list, like, Take into account what they're saying. Like to children, this could be your parent. Like your parents love you so much. And so when your parent, like correct, it's like, well, to recognize, like, you know what? Like maybe I should hear what they're saying. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That, that a friend has the ability to, to hurt you greatly in your words. But, but also, if they truly love you and they're a friend, and what they, if, like, it's so much harder to say the hard thing to an individual that you care about than just to let it slide. Um, there's, there's value in receiving instruction. Um, but there are also critical people. There are people who will like come down on you every which way for whatever you do. And you don't even think that their judgment, probably because you're, you know, like, I don't want to say you're right, but there are times when there's an individual that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they're just critical about everybody. They judge everybody. They talk trash about everybody. And you're now you're just the recipient one, one more time. I would say even in those moments, that you should receive the criticism and like how you eat trout. Um, trout, I love, but it's filled with little tiny bones. And so you have to be really careful to sort of like get the meat, not eat the bones, and it takes work. Um, so even when somebody that like 80% of what they're saying towards you is totally ungrounded and wrong, like I think there's wisdom if you're the recipient to go, you know what is like... There's a measure of truth in what they're saying. And, and I need to work on that and not get all bent out of shape about the rest. I can sort of just let that like water roll off my back. But you know what? There's an there's a, there's a element of truth. And, and I, I need to work on this, this point. Um, so verse 15, phase one. Hopefully this is how, um, how things go. Um, Unfortunately, there's verse 16. A lot of times, if the person is in sin and they're going down the road, when you come to confront them in love, uh, 
they, they may not respond in the spirit, in love, in kindness, in, in appreciation for what you've um, challenged them on. So after a certain amount of time, whatever that is, I don't know what's appropriate for every single situation, but, but, but assuming that enough time has elapsed, there may even be a need to follow up again, to say, hey, can we have a cup of coffee? I'd like to meet with you again to, to talk about this. And say, have you thought about what I've said to you? What are your thoughts? What's going on? And, 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 and maybe they say, I don't even want to talk. Like, no, like, leave me alone. I'm not dealing with this. And remember, we're in the context of the body of Christ, those who call brother. Like, and, and, and so then we come to verse 16, where where there's sort of an escalation of how do we handle this. Then Jesus says here, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Um, I'll suggest in verse 16 and 17, as this um, situation is, is escalated, um, I want to point out that Jesus here is, is, is following a biblical model that in order for something to, um, for an accusation to be made, there, there had to have been at least two or three witnesses for, it to be, um, for the facts to be sort of confirmed. Um, I would suggest that Jesus, what he's saying here is if there's an individual who's sin, who, who you've talked to privately, um, you haven't been maligning them, you haven't been gossiping about them, you haven't been talking behind their back, um, you've, you've gone to them, time has elapsed, and now you're going to go get a, a one or two more people so that you have two or three people. My, my belief is that Jesus is, the, the assumption is, is that the people have the same heart and mind, that these are two other believers. These are people who are uh, filled by the Spirit. They have wisdom. They care for both individuals. They, they want to go in humility. They want to go with the aim of reconciliation or restoration. They want what's best for the individual. Um, there is also, in bringing in two or more for the person that is talking to the individual that might have an issue of sin, um, I, I want to say there's, there's a caution, but there's also wisdom because you're sort of um, increasing the stakes. You're exposing yourself. And as you get two or three people and you explain the situation to them, it very, mel- may, very well may be that they come back to you and say, we're, we're aware of this person and, and the way you see it and what you're saying about them simply isn't true. So the one or two other people could actually end up being a correction to you as the one making the accusation. And if that's the case, then great. Like, the, like then I think we go back to verse 15, like I was wrong. They maybe owe the person apology. Hey, I'm sorry I made this. I misunderstood when I talked to them. They set me straight and I, I was off. Like in all of these for them to go well, there has to be a huge amount of humility. Um, your pride has to be kind of set down. And ultimately the aim of love restoration, unity within the body of Christ is the number one goal of all of this. And so we're told that if two or three go there, and if you go through all of these steps and that doesn't work, then we get up to the measure of church discipline. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen uh, to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. I am. 
there's a couple things here. In this part, there's, there's sort of like a bunch of forks in the road and trying to figure out how to, to best lay them out. I, I think dealing with, with this sin here, there, I, I see sort of two categories or two groupings of, of sin. Uh, the, the aim is restoration. The picture is that this individual has already sort of gone away. It's uh, in 1 John 2.19, the Apostle John speaks of individuals who are a part of the fellowship, who, who by every account, by, as they lived with them, as they served with them, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, well, they were of us, but it turns out now they're, they're not. They, they went away. And so we, we misassess them. We don't think that they were ever believers as much as they, they walked like, they talked like, they, by all accounts, they seem to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but they've gone away. And, and whatever reason they've gone away, in, this, in, in one sense, if this sin is, a, like I, I want to use the sin, sin, hurts, sin always hurts people. Um, but when bringing it to the church, it doesn't necessarily mean like publicly shaming the person and say, you know, so-and-so, they've just decided that this is more important than God and they've kind of gone away, they've walked away from God. It could be that it's, brought up to the church leadership so that leadership knows that, hey, so-and-so has moved on. They're not really in church. There's a deep burden for them that we as a church family need to sort of reach out to them. Um, on the other side of the coin, if it's a sin where there's a danger or a threat uh, to people, I think of um, the church I grew up in where there was a bunch of uh, terrible things happening to young children, um, there, there is room to, to challenge somebody for the safety of others to say, listen, this person has been sort of moved on from the church. Um, they've done this and this and this. Um, and, it's, and it's for the, the safety of, and the well-being of, of the people. Um, other cases in the New Testament where we see sort of like a public sort of, um, I don't want to say shaming, but a, but a calling out for their sin, as we see, and we'll look at one case, where there's a false teacher that's going around teaching things that are contrary to the word of God and the people need to be warned so that they're not led astray um, by false teaching. Um, so, so with that, uh, verses 15 through 17 sort of shows phase, phase one is you speak to the person individually. Phase two is uh, two or three of you go and confront the person. If that doesn't go well, then it's brought before the church if it's brought before the church and it doesn't work, then you basically send them on their way. You allow them to be gone. There's a, there's a clear um, that they're not a part of the church. Um, it, I don't see this as an excommunication. I see this as more of an acknowledgement of what their behavior is demonstrating. The church's posture is that they want to win them for Christ. Um, the best example that I've seen in the New Testament is if you'll go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, in this letter, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's this, there's this example of church discipline that was um, administered um, to a young man involved in a situation which we'll see. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even amongst the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so Paul is away. He says, listen, word is out that amongst your church, there's, there's an individual in your church 
that's engaging in sexual relations with his father's wife, whether it's unknown whether this is his actual mother or if it's a stepmother. And Paul says, even amongst the pagans, this is, this is unacceptable. He goes on to say, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed will, would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Okay, that sounds harsh. As we continue through the story, I want you to be aware that the outline that Jesus describes over Matthew 18, you can see it um, in this passage, in this section. And, and Paul says, listen, I'm there with you in spirit. Like, this person's wrong. They, they need to be disfellowshipped. Let them go along their way. Let them chase their flesh. And if their flesh destroys them, hopefully as they're going out to destruction, hopefully in their destruction, they repent and they're restored and they come back into fellowship that they may be saved. Um, He goes on to the protection of the body. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Leaven was the picture of sin, that as you you put... um, leaven into flour or yeast it begins to sort of go through the whole dough and he says if there's sin that's undealt with within the body of christ sin spreads and it's a dangerous thing verse 7 clean out the leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for christ our passover has been sanctified sacrificed therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says that the reason that, that Christ has called the church to, to sort of discipline and to care about sin within the body is because it spreads like wildfire. And the name of Christ is at stake within the body of Christ. And so then he goes, uh, verses 9 through 13, I describe sort of as uh, jurisdictional lines, that there had been sort of this misunderstanding for how um, they had been sort of exercising judgment and separation. He says, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with a so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked from amongst yourselves. You can go back to Matthew. So this is an extreme picture. We we see that there's a scenario where within the church, um, you know, know, Valley Baptist Church of Corinth, there's there's a group of believers there. Amongst the body, there's a man having relationships with a a woman that's connected to his father that, that was unheard of. It shouldn't have been done. 
And the church is like, ah, it's no big deal to each their own. It's like sin. They're like, we're all sinners, you know. <laughs> Cast the first stone. Like, I'm not going to do it. There's no, like, do, thou shall not judge. Like, uh, that's, and there's a lot of liberal churches that hold this same sort of understanding. And Paul's saying, listen, this is wrong. The person is not a follower of Christ. His actions are speaking louder than his words. You need to distance yourself from him. And the reason is, is that that, that sort of uh, immorality and sinful nature that's spread without any sort of repentance or um, remorse, it spreads like leaven. And he said, now when I told you not to associate with sinners, I wasn't talking about the world because where could you go in the whole world? The world doesn't know Christ. So you can't expect them to act like believers or to, to follow the instructions of Christ. To those outside of Christ, let them be. Treat them as tax collectors. How do we treat tax collectors? Well, we see the example already at the very end of chapter 17. Jesus loved this one tax collector. He said, even though I'm exempt from this tax, pay the tax because I don't want him to cause to stumble. I want him to come into relationship with, with my father through me. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the command is to love those outside of Christ. What they need is Christ. They don't need to be cleaned up. They, they can't be cleaned up. They need to be introduced to, their, to the Savior Christ so that they could uh, come into a saving relationship and that Christ can begin cleaning them up. Now, to the church, there's different instructions. To those who profess Christ as their Savior, there's accountability. And it's not for the sake of nitpicking, being critical. Um, it, it, it's... It's for the sake of discipleship that in Christ, God wants me to move along in my walk with him. What we see in Corinth, what we see here in this passage is, is this command to, to take sin seriously. Um, back in Matthew chapter 18, last week, in verses um, 8 and nine, Jesus says, if your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to sin, cut them off, rip them out. This isn't literally speaking. This is hyperbole. Jesus is saying, we need to take on sin. We need to view our sin um, radically. That, that we need not, not to be um, de, de, oh, laissez-faire about our sin. That when we have sin, we, we desire to be like Christ. We want um, to be made holy through his spirit. That, that when we sin, it should grieve us. And, and if we have sin, or I should say the sin that we have, 1 John 1, 1.8 tells us that we all have sin. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. So, so, so we who are saved sinners, when we sin, we should be so grieved over it. That Jesus is saying you should be so grieved that the idea of cutting your hand off or cutting your foot off, that sounds better than standing before God, uh, having experienced all of his grace and mercy, and then to continue in that way to take it seriously. And that's what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, this whole topic, I, I've said it, like, I've already said it. The whole idea of church discipline is something that like gives me ulcers. Like I, it is not pleasant. Um, when I, you know, came to Christ and started walking with him and started being on fire for the Lord. And then I sort of felt like God was doing something in my life. I didn't know where he was leading me. 
Um, he led me to Bible college, and I was just sort of taking in the Word of God and growing closer to Him. And like, I just want to serve you, Lord. I just my whole life is yours. I want to do where, where, wherever you want to send me, I'll go. Africa, fine. Valley Center, okay. Like this is where I ended up. I, there is no way I could have anticipated the weightiness as a shepherd and being being asked to do these difficult things of, of in love, going into people's lives and sort of challenging them with sin. It is, it is terrible. Like, it is so, it's so much easier to do the easier thing. Like, the easier thing is not to do anything, just to let it go. I'm not getting involved. I don't want to, I'm going to be Switzerland. I don't want to let people work it out on their own. I'm leaving room for the Holy Spirit to kind of do his thing, and I'm just going to kind of go through here where, 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 the, where Jesus all through, like there's this, the shepherds are called to shepherd. And if a sheep has a, a, something in his eye, like you got to deal with it. Uh, so when we come to these last three verses, these last three verses are taken out of context so much. And, I, and, and they're sort of like pet peeves when they do, but there's nothing I can do about it. And, I, and I'm not, and I've been growing up immature and I don't ever say anything. But you'll hear pastors all the time. These, these last three verses, 18 through, 19, 18 through 20, are often used at prayer meetings. Um, Thursday, I'm sure, when there's a National Day of Prayer, I'll, I'll hear another pastor say, well, there's two or three of us gathered here, so we know the Lord hears our prayer. And I think that then it's like, they, th- that's taking this sort of way out of context. And, and, and prayer, just, just why I kind of push back in it, it, well, first, it's not the context of what's talking about here. I'll show you what's being talked about here. But the idea of like, oh, we showed up at a prayer meeting. Oh, there's only two of us, or there's only one of us. There's only me. Um, but we don't have a quorum, so I guess I'll hopefully come back to another prayer meeting when there's two or three people. We're, we're told all through over that the Lord hears our prayers. Like if, if there's one and you have a relationship with Christ, God hears your prayers. Uh, the, the context here, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth and has been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them but my, uh, by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. He's referencing this whole sort of flowchart. There's nothing worse than ha- having to confront somebody. And sometimes confronting somebody, like doing the right thing, doesn't always leave you feeling like better afterwards. There are times when I've had to do things um, in this realm where I've done it, I just felt terrible. And I call about two or three other pastors that I go to and I say, hey, this was a situation. This is how I do it. I feel terrible. They're like, oh, it's just rough. Like that's like, there's no other way around it. Or, um, and so what I think Jesus is saying here, he's saying that as you go through this, this is difficult to know that if you have to, if you follow what I've laid out to you here and your heart is right before me and you've gone about this in humility and love and, and with the, with the heart of reconciliation, restoration, that if you have to exercise this sort of discipline, know that I'm right there with you. We see it with Paul in 1 Corinthians, that story I just read. And and where I stopped, or I didn't go to, but you can go to your own, if you go to 2 Corinthians, whatever it says up there, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul then writes again and he says, listen guys, the individual that I talked to you about before, he's repented. He's 
He's, he's changed his ways. Like he, he acknowledges that what he's doing is wrong. And you guys are continuing to come down on him. Stop or you're going to cause him so much sorrow. Uh, receive him back into the fold. Um, the, the aim is reconciliation. And I think that here Jesus is sort of is affirming to the disciples that when you have to do these hard things, know that I'm there with you in your midst. Um, I, uh, in Timothy, I want to show some of the weight of this issue and the strain. Um, If you'll turn ahead uh, to 1 Timothy, we'll just sort of, this is just to sort of fly over. So young Timothy, he's a young man. He's been discipled and mentored by Paul. Um, He's been called into, he's been called into a very difficult situation. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 Paul writes to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith, But the goal of instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, and even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. He, he continues to challenge, like, these, this is the problem, Timothy. These guys are going, they're running amok. They're older guys. They have more social influence over you. You, you need to go in there, and you need to set them straight. Um, the whole chapter one continues. Um, if you read the very end, he specifically calls out some of these guys by name. Verse 18, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they will be taught not to blaspheme. I just see poor Timothy. Like, I got to go in there and fix all of this? The, the whole book continues trying to strengthen this young man. By the time you get to chapter 5, like, I think the strain of it, this, there's, there's a verse here that, I, that always kind of cracks me up. Uh, people will read verse um, 23 of chapter 5. And Paul says to Timothy, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so you read this, and people are like, oh, I wonder what he had going on. Like, what's going on? But if you... Um, well, let's just read the surrounding passage. We have, we have a couple minutes here. So starting at verse 17, all the way to the end, look at the sort of the weight that is placed upon Timothy. The elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of three, two or three witnesses. The, the, 
impression is that there's going to be a lot of accusations, there's going to be a lot of criticism that Timothy is going into the battle and there's going to be resistance. And as these elders are faced with the criticisms, he says, only hear it if two or three witnesses are there to sort of present it. It sounds just like what Jesus said back in Matthew 18. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sitting. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. I see Paul pinning this and seeing young Timothy with all the strain and the weight of all of this and his, his little stomach with ulcers sort of overcome with, with the magnitude of what he's facing. Then Paul says, no longer drink water exclusively. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Just have a glass of wine, relax, Timothy, you'll be okay. He continues, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. My, my point of all of this is anybody who's been placed in the position of, uh, uh, of leadership or spiritual maturity, and you have somebody that's below, like not below you, but younger than you in the faith, and you see them going astray, and the Bible is clear that Christ commands his followers in, in love, not policemen, we're firemen theology, remember that we want to help them. That there is so much strain and weight when you're having to sort of help a person along in their faith for things to sort of explode. And I believe this is why Jesus says this back in Matthew verse 18. He says, listen, as you do this, what you what you bind on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth, it'll be loosed in heaven. Where two or three of you have gathered and gone through these steps, know that I'm there with you. And this whole thing, there's like, oftentimes there's so much pain and so much hurt and anger when, when somebody is going down the sinful path that, that it leaves this wake. And I think it explains the very next verse, what, what, as Jesus is teaching Peter's going to raise his hand and he's going to interrupt Jesus and ask a question and Jesus is going to continue his teaching for the rest of chapter 18 that we're going to look at next week. And look at the question that Peter asked. He says, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like often this isn't an easy thing. If there's sin and the person's gone astray and they're leaving this wake of destruction, our heart is that we want to reach out and we want to rescue that one lost sheep. And we want to bring them back to God. And even if that doesn't go well, it can get frustrating. And then Peter says, how, how, how many chances do we have to give him? Like one, two? Like he's going to list a number that's pretty big by his standard and Jesus is going to blow it away. Like you need to forgive. You need to constantly, like as I was for you, as God was for each one of us. So as we wrap up here, like the one point in all of this is I think that we need to take our sin very seriously. Like, if we're children of God, if we've received Christ as our Savior, if we've been uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God, 
that we should be super convicted about our sin, that we should act radically in trying to contend with it. None of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. But, but our aim, our heart is like, I want to be like Christ. I want to be holy. That means that there's a whole lot of repentance in my life. There's a whole lot of like um, things that I've had to adjust so that I could follow after him. And it's only by his spirit that this happens. And it's after he saved me. It's, it, it's not earning salvation. Um, when I look at this passage, I also see that God cares about the testimony of his church. Um, w- when I consider sort of some of the other theological groups, um, one thing that's always sort of cracked me up is there are some groups like in the, like the faith healing circles that, that really want to, the pull from, from the miracles of the apostolic age like, like I, I, I don't, I don't want to come off as sounding negative. Like, I, like we all want to see God move. We all want to see God do amazing things. But the thing that's cracked me up is, is I've never seen, a, you know, a guy like Benny Hinn doing his big faith healing, saying we're gonna, we're gonna go back to the apostolic age, and people are gonna come here tonight, and if you're in sin, you're gonna be killed. Like, like death is gonna happen. Like Acts chapter five, the church has just been initiated. There's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their house. They get, we don't know the percentage, but we get the impre- impression that they give like 80% to the church and they hold back 20%. Totally like this is, like I don't think I've ever given with that, the, the amount that they gave. But see, now the issue is when they gave, they said, we gave everything. And they lied. They deceived the church. And they did it separately. And Peter asked the husband, listen, you gave everything? And he said, yes. And then the spirit took his life. He fell down dead. And he's a believer. And then a couple hours later, after they'd just taken the body away, the wife, Ananias, walks in. And Peter says, hey, listen, when you sold your house, did you give all the money? She says, oh, yeah, of course we did. And then he calls her out, and she dies just like that. Later in Corinthians chapter 11, they said that as they're doing communion, that as the church was taking communion, if they were taking communion incorrectly, that, that a number of them died. Like, God cares about the church. And so this isn't, I'm not saying all of this to, to sort of release a whole bunch of little police officers that we start nitpicking each other and go, ha you're in sin, I got you. you. You kind of snapped at your wife there, like, hey, we need to talk. Like, the, the heart of this is that we really want to, to move closer to Christ. We want to be like firemen theologians, that we see people and we care and love about them as Christ loves them. And so we can, let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, I do, um, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, as we come to these difficult passages, as we work through uh, books of the Bible, um, Lord, this passage is one of those passages that is, is, is easy to see what you're saying and the application of it is the, the hard part. And, and so, Lord, first and foremost, we thank you that um, you're a God of kindness, you're a God of love, and Lord, help us never to lose sight or to forget who you are. Uh, you're holy, you're love, you are gentle, you are long-suffering. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great patience. We thank you uh, for your heart as a shepherd of reaching out to the lost and, and never giving up pursuing people uh, passionately 
And Lord, we pray that you would give us your heart, Lord, that we would um, have your love, have your patience, have your wisdom. Lord, as we interact with one another, Father, I know that at times or often I feel incompetent and, 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 and lack wisdom and discernment for um, knowing how to apply uh, these sorts of, of, of truths. And so, Father, as a church, I pray for us, Lord. I pray that as we um, come and worship you, I, I, I pray, Lord, that we would keep the cross at the center. Lord, we thank you that salvation is by grace through faith alone, that Christ paid it all for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand um, what it means uh, to, to live for the flesh, to crucify, or to live for the spirit and to crucify the flesh. Father, that you would help us um, as we journey together in this life, Lord. I pray that you would help each of us to have your eyes, to have your heart, Lord that we would love one another and that we would be united as you prayed uh, on your last night here on earth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.